the Forward Together podcast from Hollywood Trust with Paul Gosling and Jared Dean. Welcome to episode 8 of series 2 of the Forward Together podcast. I'm Jared Dean and I'm joined today by Paul Gosling. Paul, how are you? I'm fine, Jared. How are you? Ah, dead on, dead on. So, for this episode, you've had a really interesting conversation with Alan McBride, and, and Alan is a, a well-known campaigner for the, the rights of victims of the conflict here in Northern Ireland. Yeah, and, and uh, really, in a way, Alan has one of the most interesting voices in Northern Ireland because he was a victim, uh, his wife was murdered, uh, his father-in-law was murdered, in one of the most notorious events of the Troubles, yet he has emerged to be a voice of reason, of um, conciliation, uh, and uh, a campaigner for victims. Um, and uh, he's made himself very respected as a result of that. Yeah, and he talks about that in the interview. He talks about on the on the personal journey that he goes on. Absolutely. Initially through Families Against Additional Terror and subsequently with other organisations. But, you know, he does make the point that he speaks for himself, not for any of the organisation that he's been involved with. But, um, yeah, it's a personal journey. And uh, I've met Alan on several occasions and he and he speaks with humanity, which I think is the most important thing. And he has the respect of people because he, of his experience, but also because of the humanity that comes through in his work. Hmm. Yeah, very much so. Uh, a man who describes himself as a peace builder. It touches as well on a hierarchy of victims as part of the conversation. Yeah, and, and that is a, a theme that uh, a number of people touch on. Uh, it is such uh, a dangerous territory because it creates uh, this conversation that perhaps is really quite dangerous. We're talking about, you know... Uh, whether we should respect uh, some people and not others, or whether we should see things from the point of view of those who are left behind. Because whatever you think about the activities of the individuals that were involved, and whether they were to blame for what happened, or whether they were not to be blamed, or whether they were drawn into things because of what had happened to them previously, the reality is that even if you put those things to one side, the individuals who are left behind, the relatives, the, the children, the parents, well, they're not to blame, are they? They, they? they are left behind and their hurt is exactly the same whatever happened in whoever caused the particular incidents in the Troubles. OK, well, let's hear the conversation with Alan now. So, Alan, you've got a personal commitment towards dealing with issues around trauma. Uh, talk us through a bit about how you came to this and what your... Uh, emotional attachment to this issue is? Okay, so uh, October uh, 1993, um, so 20, uh, whatever, 26, 27 years uh, ago um, this year, uh, my wife was murdered in a bomb on the Shankill Road in Belfast uh, by the IRA. Uh, that was a Saturday. Um, they came onto the road uh, allegedly trying to take out uh, some UDA men that were meeting in the room up the stairs. That's where the UDA had their headquarters, but they left the bomb in the shop. Um, and uh, the bomb went off uh, and killed one of the bombers, plus uh, nine other people. Uh, my wife and my father-in-law were amongst the dead. So up until that point, I was just working as a butcher. I was very involved with uh, youth work in our church and the local uh, youth club um, on the New Dutch Road, actually, uh, in Belfast, which is a nationalist 
area in Belfast and Protestant. Um, and obviously after that Saturday, um, everything changed. And why why did you respond to those terrible, tragic events by becoming yourself a campaigner for, for victims and for people with traumatic disorders? Well, initially, I obviously was in the midst of trauma myself, um, in the midst of uh, you know, bereavement and all the things that go along with that, you know, the guilt, the anger, uh, you know, the sadness, profound sadness, the emptiness, not really knowing what life was going to be like. Uh, I was 29 years old when Sharon was killed and my whole life was in front of me and it very much involved her. Uh, and then all of a sudden she's taken from you and you're left alone uh, with a little child to, to, to raise. So um, initially I started getting involved, um, speaking out and getting involved in rallies with an organisation called Families Against Intimidation and Terror who used to highlight human rights abuses by parallel organisations. And uh, they, at the time, fulfilled a need that I had to basically speak out and to challenge uh, paramilitaries and those that would have supported them, those that would have been spokespeople for paramilitaries, had a very uh, a very deliberate um, uh, campaign against Jerry Adams at the time, I remember, because he carried the coffin of the dead bomber. And when he did that, he became the public face of the shackled bomb for me. And so I would have used him to vent a lot of my anger. I would have uh, taken black cars and stood outside his offices on the Falls Road in Anderson's Town. And I can remember when he was given the right to uh, go over to America to fundraise whenever the sanctions were lifted in 94. Um, I saw him uh, you know, being interviewed in the, in the United States. And when he was coming back in, I remember going with uh, with some friends uh, from Faith, Families Against Stimulation Tower, and stood outside. Um, the, you know, the, the terminal where he was coming through and we shouted abuse at him, um, protesting. And then when he went back to America, we went after him to Boston, to New York and to Washington. And wherever he was, I was there. Um, I remember writing to him on numerous occasions, never sending him letters and photographs of my wife, and just to try to connect him to who she was as a, as a wife and as a mother. Um, and I can remember, uh, you know, also trying to, to make sense of everything that was going on because when I was 29 years old, I'd grown up through the troubles. I knew nothing but the troubles, to be honest with you. Growing up, I was brought up in a loyalist um, family, a loyalist household, a loyalist community. My dad was a member of the UDA. Um, so, you know, violence and, and the troubles played a huge part in, in my upbringing. So I suppose, really, I was trying to make desperate sense of all of this in the midst of coping with all of the bereavement and the, and the guilt and, and everything that was going uh, along with it. And I suppose then I had this breakthrough moment uh, where I, I started to think about my own upbringing, I started to think about how many Catholics I knew, I started to think about the things that I got involved with as a kid, you know, riots and bonfires and 12th of July celebrations, etc, etc. And I believe that, you know, the society that we had here was was abnormal, it was very different from any other part of the United Kingdom, and that society in itself uh, produced some of the people that did the types of things that uh, the two young people that were at my wife did, and so it wasn't that I had forgiven them or had gone soft on them, but I sort of understood that had they have lived elsewhere in the United Kingdom, that they probably would have done the things they did. And so when I'm thinking about peace and reconciliation, I'm thinking about pointing the finger. I, I think that uh, that net has to be cast much wider than simply those that planted bombs and, and shot and killed people. I mean, I think that uh, the churches were involved in that. I can remember as a young boy going along to my own church and hearing some very uh, sectarian sermons preached from the pulpit. Uh, I can remember um, when I became a Christian myself, actually, and I was about 19 years old, and going to a Bible study in a guy's house, and uh, he was telling me that the Pope was the Antichrist and, and all this type of stuff, you know. Um, I also remember uh, our politicians who weren't really giving us any real leadership. In fact, if anything, they were compounding our sense of sectarianism and our sense of uh, 
letting the other side in uh, that type of approach. And to be honest with you, that, that hasn't really changed much in, in, in recent times. I hope and pray that one of the, the things that's going to come out of this, uh, you know, coronavirus is that we'll have a much kinder and a much more humane society. Perhaps we can forget about all the bullshit politics that we've had in this country for far too long and we can actually stand and work together uh, irrespective of where people are coming from. So I think it's when I started to think like that um, and I then started to uh, not feel the need so much to go out and campaign against people like Jerry Adams and Power Boundaries, but I started then to really try to involve myself in peace building and listening and reaching out and sitting down and having dialogue with people, even people that I was uh, you know, previously opposed to uh, in terms of just having an understanding and also for them to have an understanding uh, of where I'm coming from as well. So to be honest with you, these days, uh, I see my role very much as someone who's involved in peace building. I see myself as someone who advocates uh, a peaceful life, a peaceful society. And uh, you know, my, my criticism at the moment, certainly the bulk of it, um, is not only for those that uh, have used violence to, you know, to get away with uh, achieving a political end, but also for those that get in cover in terms of politics. Um, uh, and I, I include in that, uh, you know, the DUP, the Ulster Unionist Party. I include that anybody, not just Sinn Féin, anybody that had any tacit support for paramilitarism, either uh, by going out and actually advocating for it or by turning a blind eye sometimes, as, as, as quite often was the case when everything's happened. Yes, you, you, when you say talking there, Alan, you, you remind me of a, a couple of things I've heard others talk about where I've heard David Irvine say that what he did uh, was he felt what some unionist politicians who were well known at the time wanted him to do. And he felt that he was doing the right thing. And it was only when he reflected on this later in prison that he realised that he was wrong in what he did and it was wrong for people to have encouraged him to do that. And also, I remember Linda Irvine saying to me when I interviewed her a few months ago that people needed to reflect on their own role if they clapped on, if they applauded on the people in the paramilitary organisations. And I think that's what you're saying as well, isn't it? Well, I mean, I'm owning that from a, a perspective of being a, a, a sorry, from a unionist in the loyalist community. You know, um, I, mean, I have lots of, of things to say about the public and Sinn Féin and how they supported uh, the IRA throughout those years. But one thing I will say is that they were always very upfront and, and clear about that. Um, and I don't think that the unions necessarily were. But that's not to say, by the way, that all unionists were, were supportive of uh, and, and I didn't mean to suggest that either. Yeah, yeah and, and, and many, many, many unionists actually played a very, very important role here in terms of keeping this base safe and, and, and keeping us away, uh, including members of the DUP and the Unionist Party. But there were those uh, in positions of leadership um, who uh, played fast and loose with loyalist paramilitaries, and they continue, I think, in some respects, to play fast and loose. So they would condemn and criticise. Uh, Sinn Féin and the IRA for their relationship and yet at the same time would share platforms with notorious loyalist paramilitaries and they would be seen in photographs with notorious loyalist paramilitaries and they would be doing other things that would be seen um, to, uh, to at the very least uh, turning a blind eye to the fact that these people were involved in, uh, in widespread criminality and racketeering and, uh, and, and sort of you know almost becoming parasites in their own communities and I think sometimes and in some communities, um, some where politicians give uh, the paramilitaries cover. And I think that's that's the kind of hypocrisy that I'm pointing the finger. And do you think it's helpful in that context to distinguish between worthy and unworthy victims? Um, I mean, I suppose 
but that question about worthy and unworthy victim for him too, um, the whole issue of hierarchy. Mm. Um, and I, I will say this when we are thinking about the bereaved. Um, I mean, for the bereaved, the, the, the primary victims are the people that were killed. So they're gone. They're out of the equation. Um, and what we have to look at is that the families that are left behind. And I, I, I don't really see the families being guilty families. Mm. You know, um, I see them just being families of people who, uh, who were in this conflict irrespective of what happened to them but I will say this uh, it's one of the great frustrations of, of, of being in this society and of working in this sector of victims and survivors and if you take my situation as a case in point um, I will always challenge always challenge the person that tries to put my wife on the same page um, in terms of her guilt or her innocence with the likes of Sean Kelly or Thomas Begley um, they murdered my wife they uh, went out that day uh, to commit murder, that was what they were going out to do. And my wife just, I mean, I know she wasn't the intended target, but she just happened to be expendable. You know, she was collateral damage, I suppose is how you would put it, for fair terms. Um, so so, so, I, so I, I, I will never put them two on the same page. But their families, absolutely. I mean, my, I suffer just as much as the Begley family suffers or the Kelly family suffers. And, and, and I think the families of these people should absolutely be looked after. And and that is the focal point, isn't it? It's the people who are left behind rather than the people who, who did. I, the... I think that's I think that's where we have to that's where we have to start because I think if we don't start there and we start getting into who did what to who, um, then I think it, it keeps us down a road which is not really um, very helpful. And to be honest with you, it's a road that we probably won't ever get to agree on. I mean, because I know whereas I would suggest to you that you know Thomas Begley and Sean Kelly murdered my wife and that they should never be on the same page as my wife in terms of their guilt. Or, or their innocence. I know that there are others, uh, members of the Sinn Féin, who would see them as soldiers fighting a war, as far as they were concerned. You know, the target, which was the UDA headquarters on the second road, was a legitimate political target uh, in a time of war, and that that was unfortunate that the people that were caught up in that uh, were murdered. Uh, that would be their take on it. It's not a, an opinion I share, for obvious reasons, um, but I understand that that opinion is out there. And when you get down into that kind of conversation, that kind of argument, um, it's a circular argument that takes you nowhere. Um, but it is not helpful to me at all to try and pretend that we were all victims in the same way. You know, I would, I would sooner that our, um, our, our, our help and our, our, the focus of our help was on those that were, um, were left behind and that, you know, just let people make up their own minds, I suppose, really, about, you know, um, about the people that were, were killed. Yes, and I must admit, uh, I was reading through the book by Freya McClements and Joe Duffy, Children of the Troubles, uh, the other week, and I was reading page after page where you just felt, I just felt, well, those were war crimes. You know, the, 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 the sense in which children were child soldiers, uh, for example. I mean, there just seemed to be in so many different ways the, the lack of respect for individuals. Absolutely. I mean, I, I have no doubt. Actually, I mean, the two young people that murdered my wife weren't children. They were 19 years old, but they were kind of, you know, they were young enough. They, were, they weren't, you know, they weren't, you know, sort of, Older, older people. They were, they were 19. I have a 27 year old kid myself, and she's still a kid to me. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. so they, were, they, were, they were 19 years old. They were, you know, I, I look upon them, I suppose, as children, to be honest with you. And not only that, but and, and it's a well established fact the two young people murdered my wife uh, were widely regarded as having, uh, you know, mild, uh, and, and certainly in Thomas Beck's case, quite profound um, learning difficulties. Um, you know, so they were people that were. Uh, easily led, they were people who were easily manipulated, they were people who I'm convinced uh, had no idea uh, what sort of fuse was on that, uh, that bomb the day they carried them to the fish shop and whoever set that 
frustrated as a result of that. Um, but if he ever planned that attack, he ever set that timer, uh, knew that you know the, the amount of time that it was going to take from people up the stairs to get to get out was so so slight that uh, that they uh, were almost like I suppose suicide bombers without it being a voluntary thing. <laughs> they mm. didn't know that they were carrying um, a suicide bomb into, into into that shop that day. Um, but I don't think they had the wherewithal, the intelligence, e- either moral intelligence or or, or just physical intelligence to actually realize that they were being used now obviously obviously for yourself and other relatives of people who've been murdered the the impact is profound and all and similarly with people who are left with profound disabilities as a result of at- attacks and injuries uh during the troubles uh, but it's not just the impact on the immediate relatives it also is the fact that we're having to recognize it trickles down the generations can you talk me well, through Absolutely beside herself with anger and with you know, I would come to 
post that day and she was crying. She'd been in bed most of the day. Um, you know, my mother knows Diane now. I mean, she's in just, you know, she, I mean, she's in a nursing home. She's in her late 80s, uh, almost 90. And, uh, you know, she, she, at the moment she's got dementia and she's now asking about Sharon. She's asking about Desmond. And, you know, so there's, there's, there's a whole history of stuff there for her. Um, and yet the two of us who I think probably lost the most out of our family, I lost my wife, she lost her husband. Um, and then my daughter as well, of course, lost her, lost her, her mum and her, her grandfather. Uh, you know, we have just coped in very different ways. And it's almost as though, you know, the way that I have choose to cope actually has an impact on her, I suppose, mm. is the point of and, and for every family and every individual in the family, it is different. I remember going through going to a performance a few months ago where people on stage were talking about events in the Troubles and deaths in the Troubles. And I spoke to one of the performers afterwards who who came from a family where relative, a relative had died in the Claudie bombing. And she was saying that it was a, a, a breakthrough for her to actually be able to perform the events to talk about the the events in her family because th these had been locked away and no one had ever talked about it before and she learned things about her family and in a sense even you know apart from the the raw emotion for many victims for others if they lock it away and don't talk about it that is also a different form of trauma isn't it oh no absolutely i mean i would always advocate the talking cure in that sense you know in terms of i've been a speaker i've been a talker i've talked about it i've talked about sharon at length um uh certainly in the early days and even in the, in, in the sort of days that just weren't, weren't weren't that long ago i mean I, I i could talk about it forever you know but i also know when i'm talking about my own story i, I kind of uh I, I contextualize it by talking about what life was like before the bomb and how it was like growing up how it was like meeting sharon bomb itself of course and the aftermath of that and then in more recent times you know the movements for peace and uh the impact that's still having on me and my family um so i have spoken about that and i think to be honest with you the fact that i've been able to speak um and had so many platforms to speak has probably led me to the place where i am today but i also know there's others that just can't speak of it and i think in looking at them uh some of them certainly are are much further behind than I am if you kind of look at my life and say, well, look, is that progress? And maybe it's, it is progress, maybe it's not, I don't know. But I, I do know that, um, you know, that I am where I am because I've been able to speak and I can only but feel for people who haven't been able to do that. My own daughter is someone who doesn't really talk about it, you know, at all. Um, in fact, she came to hear me speak, actually, for the first time ever, um, about a year and a half ago in a wee pub in the Elmer Road where I was giving a talk. And, uh, I mean, she never said anything the whole way through the talk. Um, she never contacted me after to say, Daddy, that guy was good, well done. Um, I contacted her, I said, look, I'm very, very proud that she went tonight and hope that wasn't too hard for her. Uh, but she never really, she still hasn't commented on it. Um, and she probably never will. That's just the way she's very private from day one. She was very private and that's the two of us within the same family. Mm. Um, mm. So, of course, we just have to understand that people uh, cope in, in different ways. And I suppose the point that I would make is that, you know, because it's okay not to talk about it, if that's you and that's your nature, um, but if by not talking to it, um, you're going to bed at night and it's the thing that's keeping you up, it's the thing that's causing you recurring nightmares and it's the thing that, you know, within you probably do need um, at some stage to, to get that out and, uh, and to talk about it, to get it out into the open. I, I don't get the sense that Zoe is having those kind of nightmares and maybe she was too young, I don't know. Um, and she's, a, she's a very valuable young woman, um, beautiful in many respects, very... Um, uh, you know, she's, she, she's very bright and, and, and has made a good life for herself. So I don't think that, um, you know, that she's suffering or struggling. Uh, but I do know that uh, because of the work that I do here at the Wave Trauma Centre, we've got people who have come up to us uh, 
40 years ago. And it's only now that they're starting to find that they really need to go to get the help. I think they've been battling with all their lives to survive getting up to those demons and going and getting that, that help. And, and I think that's uh, that that happens too, you know. So it's not to mm. say that one's better than the other. Uh, really, the, 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 the big question is how are you feeling and, and how have you been left? And, and, and if you are the kind of person where you're struggling with life because of what happened, then you do need to go and get the help that you need in terms of maybe having someone to talk to. And I did read a piece in the New York Times which quoted Siobhan O'Neill of Ulster University um, a few weeks ago where she was saying that there is this lag that can be of decades before, not necessarily before the trauma comes through, but before perhaps a person recognises the trauma that's, that's there and unaddressed. Oh, yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely the case. Um, I mean, I think certainly initially um, I went and got help Almost immediately, I can remember being with Cruz Breathing Care within a fortnight of Sharon being killed. Now, um, uh, I went on for several months, um, and after I didn't feel that I, that I needed that kind of help, but by then I had already got good support from family, friends, from church. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, there are people who um, just haven't ever really grieved, and, and maybe it's because they were too busy, maybe they were rearing kids, maybe their, uh, you know, their energies was. Uh, was Put into something else, and maybe it's now when they're maybe all of it. Maybe the kids have left the nest, but they're sitting back, and maybe they're now realizing mm. they've lost their husband, they've lost their father, their mother, and they're starting to get in touch. So, listen, there's no doubt about it that the trauma does get passed down from generation to generation, and that people uh, do tend to grieve sometimes in very different and also in very uh, not, not just different ways, but also different time zones, you know. Um, uh, for some, it's immediate, for some, it's, it's, it's a little bit further back. Um, but I think the important thing is that everybody, no matter who they are, what's happened to them, that they recognise, you know, within themselves how they're coping, and for those that are not coping well, um, then they need to go and get the help that, that they need. And, and the good news, I suppose, having worked for a, an organisation myself that helps victims and survivors, is that that help is out there. Um, it's out there in abundance, to be quite honest with you. Uh, certainly in terms of the organisations and the, uh, you know, the the the. the initiatives that have been set up to help victims and survivors. If you want help because of what you've been through in this conflict, uh, within reason, that help is available to you. That's the good news. Before we perhaps deal with that a bit more, or talk about that a bit more, it, it, I think it needs to be said, of course, a lot of people have dealt with their trauma through addiction. And that in itself it can be something that... Uh, uh, increases the, the impact on families because perhaps they've lost someone in the family and then they've lost the other person in the family through addiction. Yeah, yeah I mean, I can, I, I, again, I, I can see that too. I uh, wrote a book um, uh, there recently actually called The Troubles of Other Losses where we were looking at people who died um, as an indirect result of the conflict. So it wasn't just the fact that, you know, they were murdered or, they, or something belonged to them was killed in a bomb or a shooting, but they actually lost that person to uh, alcoholism, to drugs to um, to negative uh, coping strategies even to such things and I know it's not a medical term but you know such things as a broken heart uh, I mean, people have just really lost the world to live after their, their loved ones died and um, I mean we have about probably 20 stories put together in this little publication and, and, and all of them are people that would very much fit that bill they were people who drank themselves to death or they were you know they were, they were people who um, who did all their things and, and, who, and who also died today uh, the atrocity happened even though they weren't killed by a bomb or by a shotgun or whatever but they, they went on to, you know, to, to live very um, just very I suppose 
careless lives that really you know, probably they wouldn't have done had the, the atrocity not have happened. I mean, I myself was someone, whenever Sham was killed, I mean, I didn't have a drink for about 10 years. I was a Christian and, uh, you know, not, not, not just the way I lived. Uh, and then after her, I was on my own. Zoe, after a while, moved out from living with Beth and, you know, you're in your own nighttime, started taking a wee beer and then it became two beers and then it became five beers. And, you know, and so I don't know if someone even, even now that, uh, I mean, I'm not an alcoholic, but at least I'm not a, an alcoholic that needs a drink to get through the day. Um, but drink certainly does play a much bigger role in my life now than it, than it ever did. Um, and I, I, I think that um, had Sharon have lived, um, maybe that, that wouldn't have happened, you know. Um, and I'm saying that, I'm not trying to say that I'm, <laughs> I'm a problem drinker and things like that, but I definitely, um, I, I, I think that uh, I, I can identify and, and, and can see how easily um, it is to get carried away. And and I think there's another there's another aspect to intergenerational trauma, or my perception of this, which is that where parents were distracted because of the troubles, uh, perhaps one of the parents was imprisoned, perhaps they were focusing on how to survive the troubles, either because violence was happening outside. This seems to me to have impacted sometimes for some families about the fact that this caused them difficulties to be good parents, and that perhaps goes into recruitment by some of the paramilitary groups. Perhaps that sounds terrible, me saying that. that I just wondered whether that's a reasonable perception or not. No, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's some evidence that suggests that, you know, that, that, that the trauma that families faced sort of were the sort of the forerunners of other behaviours. I mean, you can tell me that, including um, joining paramilitary organisations and getting out seeking revenge and, and that mm, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I also think that, uh, you know, um, when, when a person went through uh, what they went through and depending on, on, on how they, they, they cope with that, um, I think there were definitely um, other things that came into their lives that probably wouldn't have been in their lives had those things um, not have happened. I, mean, I suppose one of the things that I would say, I, mean, I know that transgenerational or intergenerational trauma is a well-known phrase, and there's no doubt about that, that trauma is passed down uh, at times from generation to generation. Um, to what extent, uh, you know, people, you know, children of, of children who were victims of the troubles are themselves traumatized is something that I'm probably, you know, not 100% certain of. Um, I, I, I do think that there's intergenerational legacies of conflict that people are coping with. Um, but whether or not, you know, they're, 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 they're traumatized is another phonetical term. I don't know if I really have a lot of expertise in being able to define a person as, as, as traumatized. You know, I mean, there's things that have happened um, and they have an impact on the way you live your life. Um, I mean, I'll give an example of that. Uh, whenever uh, Christmas Eve, my dad and my brother and me would always go for a drink for years. And when I was going up to the pub called the Chester on the Arthur Road, uh, which we always just regarded as a nationalist bar, you know, and certainly some we wouldn't go into because we were Protestants from the other end of the road. Uh, and then when I uh, started, you know, once, once Sharon was killed and I actually moved over to the same battalion, um, um, I started in that wee bar and became quite musical into it. And one comes in, I decided my dad and my brother to join me and they were petrified because this bar had always a reputation of being an nationalist bar, even though the conflict was only nine years. And when he finally went, my brother couldn't really relax, you know, at all. I mean, he, he, he 
needed somebody to go to the toilet with him. He, he just felt uncomfortable because of where he was. Um, and there was nobody looking at him. It was, it was, you know, it's just a perfectly normal bar in peacetime. But because he had an association with that bar of being a, you know, like a, a troubles kind of, you know, a bar that nurses would have gone to during the troubles. Um, now, now I don't think my brother's traumatized, uh, you know, about, about that. But I definitely think you know, there's, 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 a, there's something which is, you know, not particularly normal about the fact that he couldn't go into a bar where, you know, which was completely normal bar, you know. Mm, absolutely. Okay, Alan, that's uh, been very interesting and relevant and informative. Now, you've mentioned there about the fact that there are support services out there. Do you want to, if anyone's listening to this and is trying to come to terms with some of the trauma that they still have uh, over events, can you suggest how they can speak to people? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I work for the Wayne Trauma Centre. We are one of several victims and survivors organisations uh, around the country. There are many others, so I'm not suggesting that you, know, that you come to us. I mean, but, but do go online, do go to the Victim Survivor Service, check out what's available. Uh, we have Trauma Centre, we're a completely cross-community victims organisation. We um, are a one-stop shop for victims and survivors, so no matter what it is you've been through, in relation to the conflict and the troubles, you know, there is help available and that help is available here. Um, but it's also available elsewhere as well in terms of some of the other organisations that are doing that work. One thing I would say um, is that when you're thinking about going forward and getting help, uh, some of the organisations that are set up, and this is not to criticise them at all in terms of the work that they do, um, but I think sometimes, uh, you know, if it's, if, it's a, if it's a single identity group um, and they're just set up really to serve one side of the community, um, I, I, I sometimes just wonder about the impact that that, that has on on building peace because one of the things for me about recovering from the trauma of the troubles isn't just the fact that I wanted to be personally healed myself and to get through this and to go on to live a completely normal life uh, but I also think it's important that as a society we start to heal and I don't think that we can do that in a vacuum I think we can only do that whenever we start to realise the hurts and the losses and the pains that were caused uh, not just to our own community but also to other communities as well and we start to heal collectively and heal together um, uh, but that said, I mean, there are organisations out there and if it's something that you're ready to go and the organisation that maybe works with others who are not from your community, but then maybe you need to think, you know, about like going to one of these things like that, groups, and I'm sure you'll be, you'll be very welcome and very well received. Um, but there is help available. The good news is there is help available. I sometimes it frustrates the life out of me when I hear people say that there's nothing being done for victims and survivors. That's complete and utter nonsense. There is loads of stuff being done. Um, there are over 50-odd groups around the country. Uh, the Victims and Survivors Service has been in operation for a number of years now, providing all sorts of practical help for victims and survivors. Uh, we ourselves at the Wave Trauma Centre here, working with our injured group, uh, have just got a pension over the line for very seriously uh, disabled uh, victims, um, and that will be taking uh, coming online hopefully in May or June of this year. Um, so yeah, there's there's help available, and that's that's the good news. Um, can look up myself here on the Planet Wave Trauma Centre or indeed just check out, as I say, the Victims and Survivors website and, and see where some of the other groups are and uh, just get the help that you need. Thank you very much indeed, Alan. That's excellent. Okay, that was a, a conversation that you had there with Alan and thanks to Alan for taking the time. You talked just before the interview there, Paul, about those that have been left behind. I think it was interesting that Alan touched on that, but also about additional impacts on those left behind, such as addiction. Absolutely. And I think it's very easy 
if I may say it like this, it's very easy for people from a Republican background to think of the levels, to ignore the levels of deprivation in many loyalist areas. The reality is that the conflict of the Troubles was fought between two communities for the most part who were both in really deprived situations. And to a significant extent, that deprivation continues even more than 20 years after the Good Friday Agreement. And one of the implications, one of the, uh, you know, the, the, the difficulties associated with much of that deprivation is the high levels of addiction. Uh, that can be addiction with alcohol, it can be addiction to illegal drugs, it can be an addiction to legal drugs, prescribed drugs. Um, mm. But you know, the reality is, despite the troubles, despite the efforts of putting the troubles behind us, we still have significant levels of deprivation both in loyalist areas and in Republican areas, and we have failed to get to grips with that. And, you know, that addiction problem, and, but also I think the other point that Alan's stressing is, you know, the intergenerational trauma, yeah. the fact that the, 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 the families that were scarred by the troubles remain scarred, and the addiction that perhaps enabled people to cope with the events of the troubles, even amongst families that were not directly involved in the troubles, but the the high levels of addiction to alcohol in particular, that creates a culture within families sometimes that can be passed down through the generations. Yeah, okay. Well, look, it was a really interesting conversation that you had with Alan. For anyone who's thinking or has been impacted by that conversation, you might need a wee bit of additional support. You can always visit the Victims and Survivors Service website, and that's victimservice.org. Or the Wave Trauma Centre also have a website where you can access support, and that's wavetraumacentre.org.uk. So, Paul, thanks to you for meeting with Alan and having that conversation. Thanks to Alan for taking the time and to Amor Doherty for production support. Please subscribe where you can to this podcast and share it with anyone else that you feel might be interested. And we'll talk to you again soon. The Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland supports this podcast through its media grant scheme and core funding programme.